0: None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Not enough
1: to know the truth, you have to report the truth.
0: My guest is journalist Anthony Roberts, an expert on performance-enhancing drugs who FOIA the DEA when they tried to schedule Kratom and contributed research to the Kratom documentary A Leaf of Faith. So, what is your background in journalism? Uh, I know you you've been in um, dietary supplements uh, world, performance-enhancing drugs. You're an expert in that, and um, I, I just noticed there's a lot of overlap with the kratom world. I know my brother's a bodybuilder. He's heard of kratom before or I ever heard of it, and but it's just like one of the things on his on his shelf full of stuff. So, what's your background in journalism?
1: So. My my formal training in journalism is actually nothing. Um, mm. It's one one semester on the high school newspaper, I think, yeah. uh, and then no. I, I do have a degree in English, but I have no no college classes in journalism. No college newspaper. Uh, I started blogging back in about two thousand six. So that, that's a really early adopter to that sort of uh, outlet. Yeah, and mostly did current event sort of stuff in the the steroid world. So it was like a lot of police blotter stuff, who got busted, and that kind of got me used to the flow of of you know putting out news every day.
0: How did you get inter- interested in that in particular? Were you always uh, uh, like a weightlifter?
1: I always trained, I guess, since I was in high school and there was a website and the website was offering $200 for anyone who could write up a profile of an anabolic steroid. So you would take a steroid, let's say oxandrolone, and you would write it up. You'd do four or five pages, all the medical citations, you take surveys from the members, to, because it was a steroid website. And you would have a finished product, and you made $200 for each one that you could submit, and that was approved. So with a degree in English, and sort of, I guess, uh, an ability to, to sit down and do the work and do the research, I finished one, then I finished another finished the third. And for all the people who signed up, let's say about 30 people, I ended up really being the only person to write anything. Mm-hmm. And it got turned into a book.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So you have two, two books you wrote?
1: Yes. yeah. So, yeah one's a, they're basically steroid research guides. One of them focuses on anabolic steroids and performance-enhancing drugs. And the other goes more in-depth into things like growth hormone
0: I first heard of you because of um, stuff that you published on uh, Muck Rock about uh, relating to Kratom, and then I came to find out that you actually worked on the movie Leaf of Faith. Had you heard of Kratom or were involved in any of the issues prior to Leaf of Faith?
1: Yeah, so I had had done maybe one article for my Medium.com blog, and it was... Zoncratum, it just happened to start kind of infiltrating the bodybuilding world. And I was interested in it. And people were talking about it for pain relief. And it really took hold. And, you know, when you're a journalist or when you're an author of any kind and you spot a trend, you say, all right, let me let me look into this. And when it's something that's natural, it's a, you know, it's an herb um it's widely available i think i don't know if all journalists feel this way but i feel like if you're reading my blog right i'm not writing for the new york times where you're going there for the new york times worldview if you're reading my blog you want to know what i think of this particular herb or ingredient or product so i took it and just wrote about my experience
0: yeah, and, and had you taken it before? No, just just for the article. Actually, oh, okay. um, I had first taken
1: it just to experiment and see see what the feeling was.
0: Have you ever used it uh, like regularly?
1: Sure. Um, when I was yeah. working on the movie, the movie had a a sponsor in the creative industry. We're very open about this. Um, yeah, and so that sponsor gave me you know, product to try. And uh, I'd written for a bunch of websites that dealt mostly in bodybuilding uh, supplements, but they also sold Kratom. So sometimes they would send me Kratom. So I've used it. I've used it enough to know what it's like. I haven't used it enough to be sort of one of the real Kratom connoisseurs. You see, oh, this is Meng Da from this region of thailand and it has this yeah feeling as opposed to the red gain i don't have that i i have no connoisseurship or claim no no knowledge to that extent but i've used it you know reasonably extensively and have a very good feel for its effects uh concerning my own body anyway
0: how did you hook up with uh, chris bell was did he just hire you for the movie
1: Chris and I met in Dallas, Texas, around 2007. So I was doing online video for a steroid-based website that had a regular video section. And Chris had just released, or it was actually pre-release. So we had to go to the Magnolia screening of Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which was Chris Bell's first sort of widely produced documentary. And this was about steroids in America, basically. Yeah, And it's obviously very personal. You know, Chris is a very big part of every documentary he does. Sort of the way I like to write, Chris likes to do his documentaries. Like, this is me doing the research and you're coming along, or this is how I felt and you're coming along. We're talking to my family, and you're, you're a fly on the wall. That's very much how Chris does his documentaries, and it's very much how I like to present myself to, to readers. So I'd met him through Bigger, Stronger faster. I went to an advanced screening in Dallas, and then I saw it a second time at the Tribeca Film Festival. So he spotted me on the line. He said, hi. Uh, we exchanged numbers the first time. So I did this online interview with him that was you know, on video. I spotted him the second time. And I would say since then, we, you know, we've kept in regular touch. And when an opportunity came up, he texted me about Kratom. And I said, well, you know, I've written on this before. And he immediately kind of pulled me in to start doing research for the movie. I worked with Chris and I worked with the, the rest of the staff on um, documentary and they would say to me, okay, we have an interview with whoever. And so I would do what we call in journalism, a scrub, which is basically like you, you, you scrub the subject, the topic, as though you're trying to get, like, get it completely clean. So you see exactly what it is. So, if they were going to interview Linda Mortner, Kristen Jacobs, whoever, I would try and find out everything I could about the person's position on Kratom. Mm -hmm. I would try to find out within reason. I mean, I wasn't doing opposition research, per se. I would find out within reason, maybe if it was someone like Kristen Jacobs, I mean, was she getting campaign donations from the big anti-Kratom lobby or whatever. So, you know, I wasn't digging into people's personal lives unless they made their personal life a part of it. So with Linda Mortner, I had to dig into Ian Mortner, her son, who used Kratom, right? So Mm -hmm. I would do basically any kind of research that the next interview or the next task warranted.
0: Let's talk about Linda Montner. Uh, she was the one whose uh, son committed suicide and uh, it, and she was in the Leaf of Faith movie and and she blamed her on Kratom. It's kind of a it's kind of a topic uh, that, that that runs along uh, a lot of uh, different drugs. They'll they'll blame the drug. Uh, I don't even know if uh, you had sent me the autopsy, and I don't even know if they found they might have found my tragedy but there was also gabapentin in the system. It, with with the parents, uh, I, we see it with kratom all the time.
1: I think that with lo- looking at the real, right, you can have a documentary, and you can talk about the science and you can talk about these sort of very broad issues societally like the the opioid epidemic and you can really have this 40,000 foot view of things and and never get to any personal stories and and that, that's actually what Chris is very good at getting getting to the personal story you have to look at something some overdose right and if I've been to funerals for colleagues who have have overdosed from opioids. And when you go to one, one of those funerals, or when that happens, when you have that experience in your life, I think you realize, well, what if, what if I multiplied this by 50,000 or however many people die each year of of opioid addiction, right? Mm. So it's important to always get that one, that one person, because you're not seeing the whole thing from 40,000 feet. You have to take her experience. And she was also very vocal. She was a very vocal uh, enemy of Kratom. So in her case, I did have to actually dig quite deep into who she was and, and who Ian was. And you, know, you see someone like that, Blaming kratom, and generally the the way we structure our understanding of the world, right? We simplify structures. We reduce the complexity of very complex situations into digestible pieces.
0: Hmm.
1: So for her, there are three. You know, her son was on three different antidepressants, or two antidepressants and gabapentin, which is which is a GABA analog, right? So that's a it's also an anti-anxiety drug but he's on these three drugs these three drugs that the fda says hey this will increase the risk of suicide right so she knows he's on these drugs and he commits or he dies by suicide so she's saying to herself you know presumably well wait he had these problems and these are the medications that fix these problems. And if, if I'm the one who greenlit these medications, I said, yes, go get treated, use these medications. If I greenlit this, was I a contributing factor in his death by suicide? Now, if you have some variable that you can introduce, oh, Kratom, it was unaccounted for, I didn't know, nobody knew, it's, a, it's an emerging drug of concern to the DEA. It allows you to shift some of the blame. Maybe it's self-blame. Maybe it's societal blame. But if you can point to this other confounding factor, rather than the things that, that you greenlit, you point to the one you said, no, don't do that. And, and I think that's, sort of, that's more digestible. When you break that down, it's reductive. But when you break things down and you have something to point to, I think that that makes it a bit easier, especially for a parent who lost a child, which is just horrific to everyone. So this is a weird thing about researching someone in this day and age through social media. So I obviously did not experience this grief, but I was scrolling through her Facebook in reverse right? Because you have to start from the most recent day. And you scroll down. So I could feel myself getting, getting anxious, and and getting upset because I was, I was moving backwards through her recovery towards this moment of extreme pain in her life. Right? So I'm going backwards to see, what did she say on the day of? What did she say the day before? And I sort of, I felt it. And it, it's it's important that when you do your research and you're not at the 40,000-foot level, you're at the, the individual level, it's important that you recognize, okay, I'm, I'm getting anxious because I know this unbearable grief is about to be something I'm going to witness on her social media. So... Yeah, you know it's difficult to cope with.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the other uh, there's another kratom podcast called the Kratom Guy Show, and he just interviewed a woman, I believe she's from Canada, whose son died. He it was a multi drug overdose, but it was a it was reported as a kratom related death. But, um, she came to the understand it was a hard conversation for both of them. And I mean, and then she come to, she came to the conclusion that she didn't want to ban it. She wanted to have it regulated and just educate people about it. And you, you mentioned like in bigger, bigger, stronger, faster. There was a, a part where, um, a guy blamed steroids on his son's death and, I I just, from my brother being a bodybuilder, I don't really know much about the steroids issue, but I know it's like like Lyle Alzado blamed it on his cancer, which is not necessarily scientifically sound. Think of steroids. Like, you think maybe they're bad. You didn't really learn that much about it, and then you move on. But the headlines said, steroids killed Lyle Alzado, steroids killed my son, and and you kind of move on. And I, I, I think that's what this kind of journalism is important uh this kind of independent journalism because you get into a specific topic whereas most people would just gloss over it
1: yeah i mean imagine right the headline could have very easily been trazodone found in deceased you know system right or the deceased person system or citalopram found in this guy's system right you could easily have replaced it with any of the three drugs you could replace that headline but kratom that's going to get you the clicks and you know for me not addressing those things and and linda montner she was in a very different situation than the gentleman you're talking about with the, the steroids. that was his name is don hooten and his son's name uh, was Taylor, and he also died by suicide. There actually weren't steroids in Taylor's system, mm. and there is no black box warning on steroids. Like, So if you you know, get a prescription, you go to the pharmacy, buy steroids, there's no warning that says warning increases, increases risk of suicidal ideation. These other three drugs that Ian Mautner was on each of them carry a suicide warning. I think two carry black box warnings. Wow. So, you know, and again, though, and that, that scene from Bigger, Stronger, Faster with, with Don Houghton it's telling because I think his final, what, what he says to Chris at the end, what Don Houghton says to Chris at the end is something to the effect of, I don't care, I know that steroids killed my son. Yeah. Well- you should care you're trying to influence legislation and, and while it's tragic we should care whether or not they killed i mean it makes it no less of a tragedy but once again you have a parent who's going to break this complex tragedy right and and take this sort of this construct in this this Difficult structure and break it down to where he says it was the illegal thing. I told him to stop that caused his death. Therefore, I didn't cause his death. I had no part in this. And it's a comforting thought. But I don't think anyone who watches either movie comes away thinking that either parent quite addressed the situation correctly. So we did a series of interviews in DC and that was with uh, Drew Turner. And, and yeah, I was there for DC. And and what happened was Chris is from California. He lives uh, somewhere near Venice Mm -hmm. and, or he might, he might actually live in upstate New York now, back in near Poughkeepsie. I'm not even sure, but at the time I believe he was living in California. So my, I, I was living in New Jersey. And Chris said, hey, we're doing a series of interviews in DC and we're, we're getting some dailies and doing some background stuff because that's, if you're going to talk about legislation, you're going to want to, you're going to do it in DC, right? Yeah,
0: definitely. So,
1: yeah. So, and, and if you've ever been there, it's an absolutely spectacular city uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. the buildings that are hundreds of years old. So, you, so and, and they all have that look like they're somehow judicial like even the smithsonian somehow looks like it's judicial
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so
1: so you go there and so so chris said we're gonna do interviews here and he said why don't you fly down it's like an hour plane ride right or a half hour plane ride from from new jersey to dc he said fly down we'll, we'll rent the truck you me the you know the crew cameramen, etc we'll we'll drive around and do these interviews so congressman pocan all of that and i said you know what how about this whatever truck it is that we're we're gonna rent why don't i rent it up here in new jersey and drive down because it's not not that i have any kind of fear of flying or even care about flying but for a for a half hour plane ride and you know having to get there an hour early and then having to wait for bags it's it's going to be very close to three, three and a half hours anyway, in terms of, I could just drive the same distance, pick you up from the airport. We're not waiting for a car. We're not waiting for a rental. I can grab whatever you want and I'll drive down. So that's actually what we did. I chose to to make a, a three or four hour drive instead of jumping on a plane and so everywhere in D.C., that, that whole thing was done maybe over the course of like four days. So we, we, I got there. I took them up to the airport. Basically, we had we had dinner. Uh, saw Congressman Lou very briefly. And, and if you've seen Bigger, Stronger, Faster or Prescription Dugs, you know that, that that's one of Chris's congressmen, I believe. Um, Chris said hi. Congressman Liu did not. It was a very funny moment for me. <laughs> Um, we uh, that was probably the, the only funny story you know of the four days because we were we were in a hotel we all you know, separate rooms we met up for breakfast we had the itinerary for the day so it might have been go interview Congressman Pocan so uh, the night before I would know everything about Congressman Pocan we would go set up for the shot you know interview him get all the questions out of the way. Uh, usually a congressman Pocan was absolutely phenomenal he was one of the pro kratom congressman at the time
0: yeah he's and, still involved too oh
1: uh, well i'm glad to hear that he had he had some his congressional aides were absolutely whip smart i mean when they were speaking to me just us talking either off camera or in the hallway or in the waiting area they absolutely knew everything i mean these weren't guys who did a little bit of research for the day briefed the congressman and then moved on to the next project. These guys knew everything. I mean, I, I can't speak highly enough about how invested this whole office was. So, you know, we would, we would go do Pocan one day and then, uh, Drew Turner, who I know is a buddy of yours. Uh, we did, I think that was the second day we were there and that was, that was a very, um, Obviously, you can see the the obelisk is in the background. and we're walking around the the reflecting pool, so that you know the all those shots are you know obviously those shots are set up to yeah sort of yeah. I mean, there's those a certain great. gravitas, yeah. right, when you buy by the reflecting pool. Oh, it was amazing. So yeah. and all when you put the when you put this out uh, the 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 interview out. I'll have some – I can give you some photos to go along with it.
0: Oh, great. But they're all –
1: yeah, no. Well, it'll kind of let people in to what I do. On my best days, I'm not even the guy behind the guy. I'm like the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Like my photos are of the cameraman taking the photos. Yeah. Like I'm so far to the back because what I do – the important things that I would do for a documentary or for a book or for an article are done alone at a computer, right? Or for, for a lawsuit or for the criminal defense, (laughs) anything that I do, that's just me sitting at a computer, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, (laughs) my memories are of people's of other people doing a thing in front of me. Right. Uh, And me being in the hotel room the night before, Writing out questions for Congressman Pookhand. That doesn't get a ton of airtime in the documentary.
0: I know you said you were at the uh, Fabricant interview uh, when he yes. interviewed Daniel Fabricant. Um, and for. Everybody who doesn't know, uh, Daniel Fabricant was in the movie as, a, kind of an anti-Kratom voice, uh, he's now head of the, uh, Natural Products Association, he might have been in at the time, uh, but he was, he was also in the FDA, uh, in the Division of Dietary Supplements, uh, for a time, and, um... I guess uh, you just want to talk about the interview uh, first, and then uh, maybe we can get into some of the uh, uh, whatever you can talk about with uh, the muckrack stuff.
1: Yeah, muckrack. So I I did the research. As I'd worked in dietary supplements, I knew who he was in advance uh, because he was head of the dietary supplement division of the FDA there's no way I wouldn't at least be vaguely familiar in the NPA. They're probably, I would say they're probably the most influential of the sort of lobbying groups in in the field. So I knew who he was and I knew that there was a bit of this revolving door between he and, and actually the, I think the person in charge of dietary supplements now, or maybe the second in command is also a former NPA alum. Uh, that's Kara Welch, uh, who was actually second in command to Mr. Fabricant before uh, he went there. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of revolving door stuff going on. And that day we arrived, there was a a third party media consultant. So for anyone who who doesn't know what that is, that's someone who's sort of media savvy and sort of watches the interview and and this is good in case you're trying we weren't trying to ambush anyone we didn't ambush anyone Uh, we got his side of the story I had additional questions as you might suspect but Chris made uh, Chris called an audible we didn't we didn't go down that path and so what the interesting part the thing that I think your listeners would be interested in is that later, because I had developed this information and I didn't want to let it go, I thought that this information was best put into the public domain. I contacted Chris, might've been a few months later, I don't exactly remember the timeline, but I contacted Chris, and I said, you know, this is by all rights, this is your work. You paid me. But I would like to continue to pursue it on my own through through Muckrock. Now, Muckrock is uh, Freedom, of Organiz- uh, Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, uh, journalism outlet. So I wanted to continue pursuing this particular sort of trove of information. And I just thought that it... It was too important to let go, and it, it wasn't the kind of thing Chris would have brought up at the interview. It doesn't paint any of the parties involved in what we'd call particularly flattering light, I don't think. And Chris wasn't going to ambush anybody. That's not Chris's style. He wasn't going to just start, you know, peppering somebody with, with these questions. But I, I did want to put the information out there. And so through Muckrock, we, we asked him for comment. And you can read his comments on the site. They weren't really flattering <laughs> to me. <laughs> and uh, we were threatened with a lawsuit. So we, we had to have the article pre-vetted so that we know that anything we put out would have been defendable in a court of law the Harvard cyber law clinic very graciously volunteered their time and their help. And that's who actually vetted the article. So we worked with them and, and I know I'm sort of speaking around the content of the article and that's, that's basically because the, the article speaks for itself, but the story Mm -hmm. behind it, uh, the amount of sort of legal, legal work we had to do and, and all that was, was because we took the threat seriously. And you know, if you're a journalist, you should take those threats seriously and you should say everything I put out needs to be true, right? It's yeah. not enough to know the truth. You have to report the truth. So the article was, um, was revised many times, I would, I would say people should, should give it a read would be what I could say about the content of the article. I think it really speaks for itself.
0: Yeah, and I'll de- I'll definitely have a link in the description, and uh, I've linked it before on Twitter, um, and and just earlier too, and and just this whole Natural Products Association, they until about 2020 they were in favor of banning kratom, and and now uh, recently in a, in an article that uh, Dan Fabrican said uh, uh, he's no longer in favor of banning it. Why did kratom get on the radar of of that uh, supplements world, and, and why do you think they they wanted to ban? And uh, he he issued the first imports alert in 2012, and uh, I, I just I'm just wondering, what, like, why you think they wanted to have it banned? Well, so so let's talk
1: about what what an import alert is first, sure, right? because if, if people are listening, to are "What's an import alert?" An import alert is when the FDA has a reason to believe that something should be denied entry into the country. And so now, right, we're thinking like uh, they're keeping Kratom out, but it makes a lot of sense. So a red import alert, that's where something can be uh, detained without inspection or rejected without inspection. I'll give you an example. Spoiled food. Or, or shrimp with, you know, E. coli or salmonella, whatever shrimp get, right? Whatever, whatever that is. If, if we know that there's a certain part of, let's say, a foreign country that's, that's had an outbreak of something, we don't want that here. <laughs> we want to reject yeah. it without opening the box. We'll leave the box closed. We will reject it. So that is where the red alert authority comes from. It is a good idea. You know, in this sort of age, the pandemic age, it is a very good idea to be able to reject things without opening the box. I'm completely for this. Sure. The problem is that the red alert should be used for that purpose. And instead, they use it as an often. I'm not saying in every case they will use it as an end around. They'll say, we don't want this sold, but it would be. Burdensome, it would be laborious, it would take a huge investment of FDA time and resources to properly declare this illegal. So, we can issue a red alert right away based on de minimis information and sort of stem the flow. So, a lot of times, what they'll do is they'll just use that as an end around, okay. Now, why did they issue this particular one? I think it's because there were some bad actors. They were labeling it for as soap, right? I remember one shipment was labeled as soap. Another yeah. actor might've been saying, this is not for human consumption, wink, wink.
0: I, thought, I think so a lot other of them people, were yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's hard to point the finger at the FDA I mean, if you're selling something in pill form that says not for human consumption, yeah. what else would you do with a pill? You know, so, or they would say kratom tea and it comes in pills.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, nobody in the world is going gonna, is gonna to drop a pill into a, a tea kettle, right? So I'm not saying they had good reason or bad reason. I'm saying they had a reason, okay? They mm-hmm. had a reason to mm-hmm. say, this is, there's something going on here. As far as why they did it, I can understand it. I don't think a red alert is appropriate. I think a red alert should be chemical or biological hazards. And that's not what Kratom was. And there's obviously there's red, yellow, and green. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think a green alert, like we're going to watch this and see what happens, way more appropriate. Now, the MPA, they, let's presume most of their, and I don't know who their, their members are necessarily – But let's presume they have an interest in keeping the supplement industry safe. So it could be that they said, we don't think this is safe and it's going to give all of us a bad name, right? If this is sold as a dietary supplement, there's a lot of reasons the NPA might have been against it. Or they could say, hey, listen, I'm following all the rules. And these kratom importers, they're not. They have failed to file a new dietary ingredient notification. They've failed to uh, properly declare that this is generally recognized as safe or grass. So they could just be saying, hey, look, we all have to play by the same rules. We, we pay membership, make them pay, play by the rules, you know, exert some power, exert some authority.
0: Yeah, uh, let's talk about that—the uh, uh, new dietary ingredient um, thing and in, in the, in the grass process. Um, I, I know, like there was a company that recently applied for one, uh, and their application um, by somebody's analysis seemed to be not very good. Um, so, I mean, my
1: uh, analysis.
0: Yes. Well, yeah, it was. I'll yeah. tell you. I'll tell you. I didn't think it was. It was yeah. very
1: good at all. Um, yeah. So yeah, a new dietary ingredient notification is where you notify the FDA that you'd like to sell a dietary supplement, and they tell you you can't. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. It's.
0: Uh, and th- this it's, was formed under che, right?
1: So under Deche, there were yet yeah, there was. So DeShay was the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act, and DeShay has provisions for a, for introducing anything before 1994, like October of 1994, is what they call grandfathered in. Okay, so if it was a dietary supplement before the enactment of DeShay, it's still able to be sold as a dietary supplement. Now... With the shade, they said there's going to be a process for for bringing new ingredients on, right? It's, it's a wide, wonderful world or whatever the FDA thought, and we're going to keep finding stuff. We're going to keep discovering things. We're going to keep whatever, right? Synthesizing things so or combining things. So we want to have something in there that allows this industry to grow. It can't mm-hmm. just be that... Only what was sold before 1994 is in the food supply or is a dietary supplement. Yeah. So the NDIN, right, New Dietary Ingredient Notification, the process is essentially you're saying to the FDA, and and this is a a really good way to look at it because the FDA doesn't say fill out these 10 pages of paperwork and we'll tell you if it's cool. That's not what they do at all. They say, "I don't know. Give us what you think will convince us." Right? That's like <laughs> almost literally what what it's like. So, so under the NDIN kind of regs, what you're doing is saying to the FDA, "My ingredient is safe, and here's why I think it's safe." Right? So it sounds very simple on one level and you're you're answering that question so so the easy example would be vitamin C right imagine vitamin C was not on the market before 1994 so you and I we have the new vitamin C company and we we have to figure out how do we explain that vitamin C is safe and not only safe but expected to be safe under the conditions of use that we are providing with our vitamin C supplement right so it would look something like this. We would say, all right, we have the identity of vitamin C, right? Some, some Vitamer. And here's the chemical structure and all that. And we have the, you know, the correct, you know, Latin name and and everything. Then we say vitamin C is found in oranges. And every, you know, and there's a study where humans have eaten oranges every day for 10 years where, you know, and we say <laughs> our vitamin C has hundred milligrams, the same amount as found in the oranges in the study. And then we say, and this is where people mess up very frequently. Then we say, now we have taken oranges from this part of California where those oranges were grown. And we, we, we know that they have a hundred milligrams of vitamin C and we extract it through this method and we dry it and we we press it into a pill and right you have to tell them exactly not just why you think it's safe why you think your product is even vitamin c right yeah like when they say we we don't we've been unable to ascertain the identity of your product that doesn't mean they don't know what kratom is yeah yeah it it means we don't know that the thing coming out of your factory is Kratom. So you need a, a flow chart, let's say. So it goes from this this field in Thailand to this manufacturer, they process, you need all of that. This is a huge undertaking. This is, you know, this is tens of thousands of dollars, if not potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when, when you spend dozens of dollars, you get the kinds that we see rejected.
0: So, <laughs> Dozens of dollars, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, that uh, seemed like, yeah, I would have spent more and in, 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 um, I don't have a lot of money. But, uh, it, here's, is, but here's the problem. Yeah. Here's
1: the problem with that. So you and I, we have our vitamin C company. We send them all the proper documentation. And usually, like, I mean, I'll, I'll name drop a firm because I think they're great. Venable, Venable LLT. Okay. They are very good. They're very good, for the most part, at having guys who have, like, say, a master's degree in organic chemistry and a Juris Doctorate or law degree. They, they have those people. They have people that can do this. And so Venable's very good at it. I've seen their work. What you find is that people will hire a lawyer with no training in chemistry who doesn't deal with this usually, or doesn't know what a successful MDIN would look like. And I'm not saying they don't do their best or put in their best effort, but it's not, it's not quite a scientific document. It's not quite a legal document. And it has to pass metrics that we don't quite know what's enough because they don't tell you just fill out these 10 things or So it's, it's a difficult undertaking. And the weird thing about it is you and I have our vitamin C company and now some other guy, he wants to sell vitamin C. He needs to do the whole thing himself. He needs to submit his own NDIM and have it pass. We, we, we can't just say, well, now everybody can sell vitamin C. That's not how it works. So Every time someone tries to get one passed, in theory, they would have a monopoly on the legal Kratom market if yeah. they ever got it passed. Yeah. Now that's in theory, right? Because there was a company called NAI, and they did this for something called beta alanine. They got the NDIN passed. They are the only company with a valid NDIM. They Said to the FDA, hey, all these people are bringing in, you know, Chinese, you know, beta alanine. They're not supposed to. They don't have their own NDINs. We're the only ones who can legally sell it. And the FDA did nothing. So all the money they spent on the NDIN, and they they make, you know, great beta alanine, uh, presumably the best on the market, but the FDA will not enforce that. Why would you spend that money? to prove it safe and prove that yours is legitimate beta alanine if the fda is going to say yeah we don't care and that's something i believe the npa got involved in and i think rightly so i think they should be involved in that
0: yeah that's the whole thing is is enforcement it seems to be all voluntary does the fda even have enough enforcement to uh go around and make sure everybody's testing their product and whatnot
1: I mean, it comes down to most likely what it comes down to is priorities. So they're going to be far more worried about, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, dog food was laced with like something or other that was killing dogs. And, you know, back in the eighties or something, Tylenol, right. They're going to be far more interested in that and and making sure that's clean than they are Kratom and, and generally recognized as safe. That's for something in the food supply already, okay, that you're producing at the level that it's in the food supply. So kratom, where you have something that's a much higher percentage metragenine or, you know, 7-hydroxymetragenine, that's 20 times the amount that's in a leaf, that, that can't be declared grass. You have yeah. to go through the NDIN process.
0: I wanted to get into your... um, You did some FOIAs about correspondence between the NPA and the FDA about Kratom and also anything... um, Well, I guess let's just talk about that one first. Did you find anything uh, interesting between uh, the correspondence between um, the Natural Products Association and the FDA? took you a long time to get the documents, right? Yeah.
1: So, you know, I didn't find or at least to my thinking, right, we're not talking about, I, I've found stuff where, you know, a certain organization that, that's in the dietary supplementation, maybe a lobbying organization, would be submitting to the FDA a list of bad actors, essentially saying, go arrest these guys. But in terms of kratom, and, and I found I've, uh, well, I'll put it you like this. Anytime I found something about someone in the Kratom industry, through FOIA, I approached them directly behind the scenes, either via email or or via direct message and said, hey, your name came up. This company dimed you out to the FDA, (laughs) just so you know. So I've always sort of, and look, fair play, right? I mean, that's, that's just fair play. Uh, I've seen I've seen it happen a lot. Uh, I've seen it happen where companies dime each other out. Yeah, or they so so those are called trade complaints, but really, they're one company trying to gain an advantage over a competitor for the most part. And so I'm always very they usually try to redact the complainant's name, but you kind of know who it is. Uh, so no, I've always tried to to tell people when I found that. As far as communications concerning kratom, with FDA and NPA, NPA was already very publicly uh, adopting the position that they were. So I don't think there was anything in the in the private conversations that that were really private. I mean, yeah. the most <laughs> the most interesting thing I found, I guess, or not interesting, but at least funny was looking at, you know, uh, daily planners from the FDA and, and that they were serving donuts at their meetings. Cause you kind of think the FDA would be healthy or something, right? You would think the food and drug administration, <laughs> like, and was, I remember your sugar donut. And... Yeah. And it was just donuts. And I remember thinking it's so weird for the food and drug administration to put on their planner, like, like, don't forget the donuts. <laughs> So I just, that's the interesting thing.
0: Uh, and what about the um, DEA uh, requests? Was, was that all surrounding like their decision to schedule Kratom?
1: Yeah. So the DEA requests were super interesting, I thought, because, you know, they said, okay, we're, you know, it was like August of 2016. And they said, this herb is so dangerous, we need to immediately get it off the market. So that requires them to publish a notice in the what's called the federal register. And that's, you know, regulations.gov. So the emergency scheduling process requires, they give people 30 days notice, right? So if you have this in your possession, you know, presumably you get rid of it somehow or take it or, you know, you stop selling it. So, they said, here are our reasons. Here's 30, you know, studies or whatever. And when I went through them, I said, like, this study doesn't say what you say it does. This other piece of data is is missing and it's your own internal information. That So the whole point of, well, the whole point of democracy, right? But the whole point of forcing them to publish this publicly and give a chance for people to respond is that they give us all the information we need to respond, right? That's the whole point of saying, we're giving you a a notice and comment
0: period. Yeah.
1: But if you don't give us all the information, how are we going to respond? And I'll tell you how we were going to respond. We were going to respond in the hundreds of thousands because they absolutely got crushed during the response period. I don't think they reevaluated I don't think, and by the way, I didn't get those, those documents for months after the comment period was over. Yeah. So they didn't even provide people with everything that was necessary to make an, a fully informed comment. They gave it to me months later, and I think I had to appeal the withholding of some of the information. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very difficult process. It was very long. And it's not like the FOIA officers who are they're fantastic people. I mean, when you work with them, they're absolutely – the people that, that you talk to when you file a FOIA, they'll work with you. Yeah, that's cool. And it's not like they were saying, I don't want you to have this. Yeah. They were saying, no, this is being withheld. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, and F, FDA is an amazing group of FOIA professionals too. I think actually Drew – Used to do FOIA, as a matter of fact, from the other side. I think his old job was he was the FOIA agent for a, a federal agency. Uh, after oh, I didn't that know that. Week. Well, that's yeah. cool. So imagine, though no, that's Drew on the other side, right? These aren't, these aren't terrible people trying to yeah. withhold information. Government These People doing used... their job.
0: Yeah, yeah. The other Kratom thing you published was on uh, Mock Rock was this uh, flawed report back in two thousand seventeen. The question is why do you think, you know, these researchers were trying to make Kratom look bad. That the you do what I do a lot on here is actually check the sources and, and see if what they're claiming in the paper is right and, and you found that a lot of the things they were claiming was wrong. Um what do you think their motivation was? Like that's what i'm trying to get through this whole thing is like like what's the motivation of of people like going after kratom opposing it i mean you could explain what the what the fda was but i wonder if it's maybe just uh let's be anti-drug in general uh, i don't know
1: it was very slipshod work and actually before i forget i want to say her name's kendra Jowers. she's a she's an attorney in Florida. And she, she did some excellent work spotting inconsistencies in studies, I think, following mine on some different studies. And the problem is, right, and this is me speculating, right, because I don't know what anyone's motive is, other than if they tell me this is my motive, right? Yeah, yeah. But when there's a pile-on, an academic pile-on, so you have a bunch of researchers and Hey, bad salts are terrible or whatever. And now there's emerging research. Well, you want to be part of the, you want to be the first guy in the pile on because the future citations will all go to your work as the seminal work, right? So I kind of think that's the reason is hey, everybody's jumping on Kratom. Let's publish something quickly. Get out ahead of this and it'll say everything that our colleagues in the future will want it to say I don't think it was rigorous I think it was rushed and I think I mean you can see there's actually editor's notes in it so I don't know how it passed the peer review process with the editor's notes still in it
0: it's game of telephone it's like uh, this guy said this and I found that with a lot a lot of shit like People people say Kratom causes hallucinations, and there are still, like, rehabs that'll say that. And it's based all the way back on a uh, thing that Dr. McCurdy did, which was... Um, he did a paper on legal highs in general, and, and he also did it on Salvia Divinorum back in, like, 2006 or something. And that does cause hallucinations, uh, but... They took that and just said these legal highs cause hallucinations, and and so that just went into this space where there was like guys on the news in Florida from a rehab center saying, "Oh, you're gonna get you're gonna get hallucinations if you take kratom." <laughs> so it was, well, it was and crazy. You know,
1: that's that's where the rehab centers are, right? Like, yeah. So, like for example, the push to ban kratom here. Imagine kratom worked, right? A hundred percent. Imagine and i don't know what people's feelings are on whether it's useful for you know combating opioid dependency but imagine it worked 100%. now you can be you can be somewhat gracious and say well the recovery centers would then start using it with their patients or you can be you know somewhat skeptical and say man if it worked they wouldn't want it on the street where their patients could just use it and stop coming to them. So that's where you see someone like, you know, Kristen Jacobs. She's uh, Florida house representative. She was anyway, she passed last year. I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, that's where someone like that, you have to, you have to question, well, South Florida has a, a booming uh, recovery uh, economy. So, would this impact that adversely? And is that what she's representing or is she, I mean, look, she said the Kratom lobby is like Hitler, right? (laughs) She literally said that. Yeah. It was the most, first of all, if anything, if she's talking about propaganda, the Kratom lobby would be about Goebbels, right? Let's be honest. It wouldn't be about Hitler. (laughs) And she said that, she said that. And it was like, It was the weirdest thing to say, right? Because we, like you and I, can have a disagreement, and I think kratom could work for opioid dependency, and you might think it it doesn't work. And Chris Bell, he might say it works a hundred percent. Yeah. But as soon as I start calling you Hitler, like the communication breaks down. That's not productive.
0: Yeah, there's that kind of thing goes on, definitely she she seen she you know what she reminded me cuz I was watching the movie and you know, she reminded me of Nurse Ratchet from uh uh One Fru- Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest but yeah were were you there with uh, the Chris and Jacob's interviews
1: No I okay. wasn't and so that right I was I mean that's what I that's what I would have really of of all of the interviews that's the one I really would have liked to have seen Chris really really go hard on cuz like she was talking about you know like she was essentially taking the opioid or the or the crack cocaine narrative and just just inserting kratom like we've seen kratom addicted babies and kratom dens and mothers <laughs> that just have a glass of tea of kratom tea and yes. the baby is born addicted and it's like you are you are not telling the truth like crack no babies were say. even
0: a it weren't even really a thing I no, mean, I, yeah. no, I mean, yeah. you know,
1: she, she said how many, you know, she's, she's out there saying, you know, how many more are going to die? The deaths involve polypharmacy. One, one guy in, in the, the infamous, the study with the 30 deaths or the 15 plus the other 15 deaths, one guy was literally stabbed by someone else. Yeah. And they attributed the guy who got stabbed, they attributed his death to Kratom.
0: And there was a guy with a gunshot. There was a guy that fell off a ladder while he was roofing. Uh yep. Yeah, we yeah we definitely looked into that. And then there was like methyl tramadol with kratom sure. combined, and it, it's just yeah, that was the Sweden yeah. study. Yeah. Yep. Nine deaths in Sweden. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No. It's 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 one of those things where. You know, I mean,
1: for me, right to the dead, we owe the truth. We don't, we don't know anything more. Like, you know, really? I, I wouldn't be any kinder to Ian Mortner than I would be to Kristen Jacobs, right? We owe them the truth, and I don't, I don't know anything about Ian. I interviewed some of his friends, and i never interviewed any of Kristen's friends. In terms of saying the kratom groups out there are, are are lie machines, and that it's a scourge on society. And that it should be schedule one of all things, which is which is indefensible.
0: That's going backwards.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's just I mean, schedule one is I know that marijuana is in schedule one, but generally, you know, schedule one, that's and she said, Well, this is to go after the industry, not the users. Well, okay, but somebody <laughs> gets caught with kratom and it's a schedule one drug. Yeah. They're still, they're still getting in a ton of trouble. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't find that particularly compelling. And, and in her defense, right, like, you know, and this isn't to speak overly graciously of the dead, but, like, that's the one issue that the Kratom world knows about her. I mean, she, she advocated for county employees to get a living wage, education, equal rights, pro-choice, climate committee. We know, her as, we know her as one thing the anti Kratom person who said Kratom people are like Hitler. Yeah. But like Ian Mautner, right? Like Ian Mautner, like Linda Mautner, she's a three dimensional person. We only know weird sound bites, right? So, yeah, yeah. again, and that's why it's important to go down from that 40,000 foot view and look at people and say, okay, well, we disagree about this one thing. And you're a little bit nutty if you think i'm anything like hitler (laughs) but of these hundred things we only disagree on this one right yeah like there's no like monster listening to your show who's like equal rights i'm against that right and yeah, yeah we probably agree on most things yeah and this one area we have a a problem in we magnify it to you're the hitler kratom person And I'm the the bad Hitler Kratom person who's against you, right? We're both Hitler to each other. Neither of us are Hitler. (laughs) You know what I
0: mean? Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good message. Thank you, Anthony Roberts. Links to Anthony's work can be found in the description. So far, we don't advertise or ask for donations, but we ask you to share this on your social media like, subscribe, rate, review. The music is risy. The song is called Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. One more time for the people in the back. Not enough to
1: know the truth. You
0: have to report the truth. Take care.